1: I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5
2: a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It's 5 a.m. on Wall Street, and here's your top five at five. Stocks putting a stop to the skid to kick off September, but the relief rally uh, may be short-lived. Futures uh, were under pressure, in fact, now just slightly positive. Investors gearing up for the monthly jobs report, the data seen as key to the Fed's next rate decision. COVID concerns in China mounting another province. province implements fresh curbs on the back of the Chengdu lockdowns. Brewing a new path. Starbucks officially naming its new CEO set to take up the coffee giant's reinvention. And the streaming wars heating up once again with a fantasy prequel showdown. It's Lord of the Rings versus Game of Thrones. It is Friday, September the 2nd. And you're watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. A very good Friday morning to you. I'm Wilfred Frost, uh, in for Brian Sullivan uh, this morning. Let's uh, get you up to speed with what the markets are doing uh, at this hour. And stock futures are now positively uh, pointing to a positive open, but only a fractional positive open S&P futures up about Uh, 0.1%. Similar uh, fractional gains for the Dow uh, and the Nasdaq uh, this morning, as you can see, they're about 20 points or so on the Dow. What a wild session it was uh, yesterday. Uh, The Nasdaq was down a full 2%. It ended up uh, only down 0.25%. And we did have gains for both the S&P and the Dow. Uh, Week to date, we remain down 2% for the Dow just more than 2% for the S&P and about 3% for the Nasdaq. But a very positive afternoon session yesterday uh, did allow a rebound from what was looking a lot worse week to date uh, than uh, than it did at the close. Let's have a look at yields. Ten-year uh, nearly touched 3.3% yesterday, then pulled back to close closer to three point. Two five, which is where it sits uh, at the moment. Of course, uh, no doubt yields will be uh, awaiting that data uh, on jobs later this morning. Let's have a look at crude, which has had a, a pretty negative uh, week. It had a negative session uh, yesterday, down 3%, week to date down about 7%. Uh, bouncing a bit today, as you can see, at uh, 2.8% higher for WTI, $89 per Uh, barrel. Let's also have a quick look uh, at crypto, which uh, has suffered, uh, of course, in light of uh, a uh, stronger dollar for for a lot of uh, the recent trade. But uh, yesterday, we did see the dollar up uh, about 0.8 percent. The dollar index uh, at a 20-year high. Today, though, you can see a little bit of a rebound for Bitcoin back above uh, 20,000, up about 1.4 percent. Let's have a look in now. uh, Stocks Uh, overseas. uh, Asia uh, had a mixed session. Uh, Hong Kong uh, was down about a percent, uh, just shy of that by the close, uh, three quarters of one percent flat for uh, the Nikkei and for Shanghai. Uh, The Hang Seng, uh, the big loser in the region, Uh, three quarters of one percent, as I mentioned. Uh, Europe as well. Let's have a look at that. That has been improving throughout the session. Uh, The DAX is up about 1.5 percent today. Uh, The FTSE up nearly a percent, as is France. Uh, Worth bearing in mind that they closed sharply negative yesterday. They didn't enjoy that bounce that U.S. markets had in the afternoon. And uh, coming into today, the stock 600 uh, was down four percent for this week. So a bit of a reprieve bounce this Friday uh, for European markets. Uh, Let's get you up to speed on some of the other top corporate stories. And Pippa Stevens joins me with those. Very good morning to you, Pippa.
3: Good morning, Wealth. Well, Shell's CEO is reportedly preparing to step down. This according to Reuters, which says Ben Van Burden will exit next year after nearly a decade leading the oil giant. The report says there's a short list of four candidates to succeed Van Burden, including two company insiders. During his tenure, Van Burden has navigated the company through two major downturns and a move to slash greenhouse gas emissions. Shell tells CNBC it is not commenting on the report. And Amazon losing its effort to overturn a union election at one of its warehouses. The National Labor Relations Board recommending the company's objections to a historic union election at its Staten Island, New York facility be rejected. In April, workers at the warehouse voted to form Amazon's first U.S. union. The company has until September 16th to appeal the NLRB's recommendation. And newly authorized COVID booster shots clearing their final regulatory step. CDC Director Rochelle Walensky formally signing off on the shots targeting the original virus and Omicron sub-variants. That paves the way for them to become widely available with expectations for the Biden administration to begin its latest booster campaign well after Labor Day.
2: Pepper, great stuff. Thanks so much. And we'll see you again uh, shortly. Uh, meantime, let's get you up to speed uh, on the markets and discuss uh, all of those moves, particularly yesterday. Um, uh, in more detail, as well as the the jobs number, which, of course, is coming out a bit later. Anna Hahn, equity strategist from Wells Fargo, joins me. Uh, Very good morning to you, Anna. I mean, clearly yesterday was a wild session. Let's start there. NASDAQ down 2% uh, at one point, nearly finished uh, positive. What do you make of this return to volatility? Do you think it's starting to peak at this stage with, with yesterday's intraday rebound?
4: Well, I don't know particularly overall market volatility is starting to peak, but yesterday's drivers seem pretty special, particularly to the information technology sector. As we saw, Tensions with the U.S. and China are rising and the changes coming to chip makers and the different requirements that they'll have uh, is really racking the markets there. I think that's been the main driver for the last uh, couple of days. But whether those continue and how that will shape up, we'll have to see. And this could be a very hot topic for the upcoming midterm elections.
2: Let's quickly just touch on that. Uh, You mentioned the chip makers and the news of of banning exports of certain AI chips to, to China Um, Clearly, we saw a big reaction to those semi-stocks to the downside yesterday. Do you think there's further weakness to come there? Was it a reminder that valuations in the tech space remain relatively stretched and you just have to get a little bit of bad news to see a big move?
4: Well, I think you bring up a good point. Is This is within the semi-sector, but if you look at the overall tech sector, you have seen a big correction in the valuation uh, since you've seen yields rise. But particularly within Infotech, the big popular trade on the buy side here has been being long software and short semis. In a way, long something a little more defensive compared to being short something a little more cyclical. Now, that trade to us is starting to get a little bit crowded. So Could we see more weakness on the semis? We do think we could, but we think this is a trade where right now, timing-wise, is not the most best risk-reward here. So, it's not something we're really eager to dive into and pile on.
2: Let's touch on yields, uh, which clearly have been uh, on the rise during the course of of this week. And uh, we've got the jobs number coming, of course, later today, which will no doubt impact yields further. Whilst yields are still rising, 10 years about 325 Is it hard to see uh, equities bounce again meaningfully until we settle down?
4: We do think for the rest of this year, it could be difficult to see uh, substantial upside for equities. And keep in mind here, you mentioned yields, but The big driver, especially last month, of the yields rising, has been real yields. If you look at how much the 10 year real yields have moved, nearly 50 basis points or so for the last month, that's been mirrored in nominal yields. And the driver there is that it also impacts how much uh, people are changing on funding as well. When you see that we have positive real yields, it affects the housing market, it affects people's pockets. And in a way, it could actually help bring down inflation, which would be good news. But at the same time, it could eat into people's spending. So these are all the components we think about in this yield move and also its impact on companies with growth as it increases the discounting rate and might bring down equity multiples. So for the near term and intermediate term, we don't see that much upside for equities. We think it's really more uh, playing the sectors.
2: And and just finally, uh, I mean, uh, clearly a lot of people debating whether or not we're going to see a recession or not. Uh, You've been discussing this a a little bit internally with with your bankers. And uh, what what does that uh, that conversation tell you, particularly as it relates to corporate access?
4: Our view has been if we were to get a recession, it would probably be rather mild compared to the historic recessions we've seen in the past. And part of the indicators or signs we're seeing that support this is, one, we're seeing that earnings growth and margins have somewhat remained firm, if not expanding still. Another being that inflation has started to come off the boil. And another being that conference season has remained somewhat robust. These are all signs combined with a strong labor market that indicate were we to see a recession, it would be rather shallow and it would really depend on how the Fed proceeds with their tightening on monetary policy.
2: Anna Hahn from uh, Wells Fargo Securities, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Now, President Biden warning Americans that the country's democratic values are under assault by those loyal to former President Trump. President Biden making that assessment during a primetime address defining the midterm elections as a battle for the soul of the nation. NBC's Bree Jackson has more on the president's speech and joins us from D.C. Bree.
5: Good morning, Wolf. Yeah, in a blistering speech last night, President Biden accused former President Trump and his supporters of promoting an extreme ideology that threatens democracy. From Philadelphia, the birthplace of American democracy, President Biden warning
6: Democratic values are at risk. Quality and democracy are under assault. We do ourselves no favor to pretend otherwise. The
5: president calling out a faction of the Republican Party.
6: There's no question that the Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And that is a threat to this country.
5: With midterm messaging in mind, the commander-in-chief insists he's not against mainstream Republicans. But GOP leaders blame Biden and Democrats for dividing Americans with their rhetoric.
0: They are trying to weaponize the government against half the population, against any Republican, any conservative, anyone who voted for President Trump.
5: The former president is wrapped in a legal battle with the Justice Department. A Florida judge is waiting to rule on Trump's request to have an independent third party review evidence, including classified, documents seized from Mar-a-Lago.
6: It's not like this was some sinister plot.
5: President Biden accuses Trump supporters of not supporting the rule of law, condemning attacks on the FBI after its search of Trump's Florida estate, and pointing to the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol.
6: They see their MAGA failure to stop a peaceful transfer of power after the 2020 election as preparation. For the 2022 and 2024 election.
5: Mr. Biden cautioning that rights and freedoms remain at risk while urging all Americans to unite behind defending democracy. And the White House claims this was not a political speech, but the president's remarks in Philadelphia come amid a heated and competitive Senate race in Pennsylvania. And as Mr. Biden tries to help Democrats maintain control of Congress, Wolf.
2: Bree, the midterm going to be absolutely fascinating. Uh, thanks so much, Bree Jackson there in Washington, D.C. When we come back here on Worldwide Exchange, fears of expanding COVID lockdowns in China growing after officials tell Chengdu's 21 million residents to stay inside. Our Eunice Yoon has the latest on China's newest bid to stamp out the virus. Plus... Europe keeping close tabs on the Nord Stream pipeline with gas flows set to resume in just hours, what the latest shutdown could mean for the region's race to secure energy for the winter. Plus, your money's uh, big movers uh, and shares of one of the athleisure brands that has been in focus uh, getting in their stride on the back of quarterly results. We'll have that name for you. When Worldwide Exchange returns in just a couple of minutes, futures pointing a little bit higher this Friday morning.
4: Have you ever brought your magic to Walt
5: Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones...
2: Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Uh, To China's ongoing efforts to contain COVID, officials in the southern tech hub Shenzhen extending curbs on certain public activities uh, to try and curb rising case figures there. This uh, after the city of Chengdu imposed a sweeping citywide lockdown, confining 21 million residents to their homes as uh, China doubles down on its zero COVID policy. Eunice Yun joins us now from Beijing with the latest. Eunice, it's just uh, one semi-lockdown after another, it seems.
7: Absolutely. Uh, Shenzhen is on edge, uh, fearing a full-blown lockdown after authorities started to impose even more COVID curbs. Uh, the restrictions have expanded there. Uh, to um, dine-in, entertainment, as well as public venues, work-from-home orders are now imposed for much of the city. Uh, Factories and offices, though, have not been closed, so that is one bright spot, at least for now. Uh, Shenzhen's 18 million people, though, do have reason to be nervous. Uh, The city had gone into lockdown in mid-March, over 29 cases. Today it reported 87. So uh, Shenzhen is home to big tech companies like Huawei, uh, BYD. Also, Apple supplier Foxconn has a a Shenzhen facility there where it assembles iPhones. Uh, Foxconn said that its Shenzhen plant is operating normally. Uh, Shenzhen officials have also been trying to dispel uh, uh, rumors, uh, they say, or at least um, a lot of speculation, that Shenzhen could be going into a lockdown for at least three days. Uh, They've been uh, squashing those, saying that Uh, People are misreading uh, what they're saying about the restrictions, but it's unclear whether or not their comments are able to uh, placate the residents there because a similar speculation uh, Wilfred uh, was heard before we saw Chengdu go into lockdown and also Shanghai go into lockdown um, several months ago.
2: Well, with that in mind, you, can we can we expect further tight measures coming from the Chinese authorities in, in the in the days and weeks ahead?
7: I think so, especially because we do have this big political leadership reshuffle that's expected to happen in October. So uh, things are tightening down around Beijing, but also um, in Chengdu. Uh, Chengdu, of course, uh, is now in day two. Of their lockdown, Uh, the good thing, I would say, from a business standpoint, is that factories are being allowed to operate in a closed loop for pretty much everybody else. Uh, They have to be uh, working from home, especially if you're non-essential. But uh, one other bright spot, I would say, for Chengdu is that unlike uh, what we saw in in Shanghai, uh, people... Um, are saying that they're allowed to go out at least for two hours a day, well, one person per household, to buy some groceries, and that the grocery stores are looking relatively stocked. Yesterday it was looking pretty ugly because they were told uh, six hours before they were going to have to uh, go into lockdown, and people were just, you know, buying whatever they could at the supermarket. We saw tons of photos of people even, like, carrying half of a goat on their shoulder or, like, chickens. Who knows if they're alive or not, because they still have feathers on them, but all tied up on people's cars. I mean, it was a real big fear yesterday.
2: Wild, wild stuff. Eunice as always, thank you so much uh, for us uh, live in Beijing uh, this morning. Uh, Still on deck on Worldwide Exchange, Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes uh, suffering a legal setback. uh, What a judge's decision means for her bid to avoid prison time. And be sure to sign up to the most powerful investment event of the year. CNBC's Delivering Alpha returns on September 28th with uh, economic leaders, policymakers, and the world's best investors sharing their expert insights. Just scan the QR code on your screen or go to deliveringalpha.com to register. Futures are pointing a little bit higher uh, only by a matter of basis points uh, as we speak. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, Russia appears set to resume gas supplies to Europe through the Nord Stream pipeline following a three-day shutdown for maintenance. Grid data indicates uh, flows will restart uh, early tomorrow at about 20 percent capacity. That's uh, as planned. That's a relief for the market. Even as uh, fears persist, there could be more halts and uh, this fall and uh, winter, of course, the key area of focus. Dutch TTF and uh, UK natural gas prices uh, are falling today uh, as a result, as you can see there. Oil, though, is uh, rising uh, as G7 finance ministers are expected to advance uh, plans today to impose a price cap on Russian oil. It would be aimed uh, at cutting revenue for Moscow's war in Ukraine, but to keep crude flowing to avoid uh, any spike in prices. Worth noting that uh, it's up 2.4 percent today, WTI, uh, but pretty sharply lower over the course of this week, down 7% this week coming into today. Uh, let's talk about all of this with uh, Ole Hansen, uh, Head of Commodity Strategy at Saxo Bank. A very good morning to you. Thanks so much for for joining me this morning. Um, taking a little bit of a, a step back, uh, first of all, one of the key factors I think has been uh, the level of storage uh, for gas supplies in Europe, a lot of coverage of that this week and the fact that it's got above 80% again. Just break down for us... How important that is, um, to what extent could what's stored cover uh, the, the needed supplies for gas in Europe uh, over over the winter months?
8: Well, it is obviously a significant development, uh, especially we 've been managing to, uh, to increase supplies at a time where demand from uh, Asia has been relatively weak, so, uh, so we 've had the playing field uh, on the LNG front a little bit to ourselves, and that helped uh, speed up this process. But uh, one thing is uh, inventory, another thing is flow, and we need to continue flow throughout the winter uh, of gas coming into the region in order to ensure that we, we, we can maintain uh, production and maintain uh, heating in our homes so uh, so while, while it 's a good development it's still uh, it 's it's not enough. We, we clearly need uh, supplies coming in because uh, demand from domestic consumers. Uh, really uh, skyrockets over the winter, obviously, depending on the weather situation. So uh, so it's, it's, it's a good development, but it's not enough. Uh, we, we're still reliant on flows coming in. And you could risk, obviously, as we move into the autumn months, that the competition for LNG from Asia will start to increase. And uh, that will obviously keep the prices uh, to, uh, to, uh, quite elevated and also require that we still get gas in from Russia.
2: So, 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 if Russia decided to shut things down uh, for a week or two let 's say uh, during the winter months, w- would storage be able to cover that or or is storage only enough to, for a matter of days
8: A short period of time it would be able to cover, but it will not be able to cover to the end of the winter so uh, so again, if we run into a, a, a brief period, it will obviously create a lot of panic in the market, but uh, it should cover it should cover the uh, the gas uh, the gas demands but uh, but generally, it, it is a, obviously still a very uh, precarious situation. Uh, we are hoping for that 20 percent capacity to return. And, uh, and with that, obviously, also uh, some uh, somewhat weakness and more weakness in the price, but uh, probably not much more below those that 200 level that we are getting close to now.
2: What do you make about this prospect of a, a price cap from the G7 on uh, oil from Russia? Is, is that plausible?
8: Well, my initial answer would be no. Uh, I'm really struggling to see how it we how we'd be able to work out. Uh, we 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 all know that the oil right now is uh, from the from Russia is primarily flowing towards Asia to countries who are not going to be uh, take part of this uh, this kind of deal. Uh, Russian gas or sorry, Russian oil is already trading at a at a considerable discount. If you look at euros, which primarily tends to go west. It's, uh, it's been trading at a discount anywhere between 40 and $25 below Brent now for, since, the, since the war broke out. So they're already selling at a discount. So uh, so it, it's the, the, I would like to see the details before I can really get, a, get my head around whether it's actually something that's feasible. Because at the end of the day, if, if there's still buyers out there in the world who's willing to pay an, another price, then it will go in that direction. And then that, that all may end up in a European uh, gas tank uh, eventually uh, by, uh, by other ways of, of transportation. So uh, we'll see. I'm, I'm a bit sceptical.
2: Ole Hansen uh, from Saxo Bank, thanks so much for joining us uh, this morning. WTI crude is up a couple of percent this morning, but uh, still down uh, sharply this week. By the way, futures are, are fractionally higher in the pre-market following yesterday afternoon's bounce, but this week's. Uh, declines. Uh, let's uh, get some individual uh, moving stories for you now. Uh, three key stock stories of the morning. First up, Broadcom, the chipmaker reporting better than expected uh, third quarter uh, uh, revenue uh, and uh, is forecasting fourth quarter revenue above analyst estimates. As you can see, it's up 2% in the pre-market. The company expects strong demand from businesses going digital to help offset a broader slowdown in the chip industry. Uh, Broadcom primarily makes chips for data centers and uh, routers, giving it an edge over rivals with more exposure to PCs and smartphones. Uh, stock number two, PagerDuty, the business software maker posting a smaller than expected second quarter loss as uh, revenue rose more than 30 percent, beating Forecast. The company's third quarter guidance, slightly above analyst estimates, uh, shares uh, up about eight percent. Finally, Lululemon uh, shares are rallying after the retailer's second quarter earnings and revenue easily beat forecasts. Sales rising almost 30% in North America uh, and 30% online, too. Lululemon is raising its guidance for the year, saying it hasn't seen any meaningful shift in customer spending habits. And it's planning several new product launches in the coming weeks. It's up uh, nearly 10% in the pre-market, as you can see, though, down 17% or so uh, year-to-date. Still on deck here on Worldwide Exchange, Apple once again facing the unionization wave, sweeping the retail industry, uh, where the tech giant could soon be facing a vote by workers. That's next. We'll be right back here on Worldwide Exchange Futures Flat. If you're just joining us, good morning and welcome to Worldwide Exchange. The market's fighting back to kick September off with a win. The Dow and S&P stopping their losing streaks yesterday key on the trading agenda today the monthly jobs report Uh, ZipRecruiter's chief economist lays out the hurdles employers are facing when uh, it comes to hiring that's coming up and speaking of hiring uh, starbucks officially naming its new ceo being tasked with a long list of issues to address for the coffee giant it is friday september the second you're watching worldwide exchange on cnbc Hey, very good morning to you. I'm Wilfred Frost in for Brian Sullivan this morning. Let's get you up to speed on the market action. Futures essentially flat in the pre-market, of course, comes off a uh, very strong rally yesterday afternoon. The Nasdaq was down 2 percent. It ended uh, down just a quarter of 1 percent. The S&P and Dow ended uh, just a little bit higher uh, for the week, though, coming into today. The Dow's down 2 percent, S&P down just more than 2 percent and the Nasdaq down 3 uh, percent. As you can see, we're up what a handful of points, two points. On the Dow so far uh, this morning, strong uh, gains uh, in European trade, which didn't enjoy uh, the afternoon bounce that uh, we saw yesterday in the U.S. Now, to our top story in the August jobs report due out at 8.30 a.m. Eastern time, uh, joining me to discuss uh, Julia Pollack, uh, chief economist at ZipRecruiter. Julia, thanks so much for for joining me this morning. I mean, clearly last month uh, we saw a very strong print of uh, 538 thousand uh, jobs, uh, much stronger than people uh, expected. Just break down what you expect on some of the headline numbers for this month.
9: Well, there are stiff headwinds facing this job market. Inflation, rising interest rates, a very strong dollar. And yet every month this year, the labor market has defied expectations with strength almost across the board, with very, very broadly distributed gains. So the magnitude of gains has surprised us, and also the breadth of gains. They've even been in industries that you would expect uh, to be very sensitive to, to current conditions. So we expect to see continued strength in the labor market, perhaps a bit of a slowdown, about 300,000 jobs is the consensus estimate, uh, with unemployment staying steady at around 3.5 uh, percent. And, and other, you know, other, other pieces of that uh, report are expected to be very strong. Um, it's, uh, you know, this has been the bright spot in the economy.
2: I guess uh, one one factor that people have been looking at for, for many, many months is the participation rate. Uh, demand for labour continues to be uh, even stronger than supply for labour. Is that expected to equal out at any point soon?
9: So participation was recovering quite nicely. We were seeing older workers unretiring uh, for several months there. And those gains seem to have stalled. It seems as though the people with the highest propensity to return to the labour market uh, have done so and and uh, other people are not coming in they're staying on the sidelines. It is a big surprise. You know, usually when the unemployment rate dips below 4%, that draws people in off the sidelines. As it gets easier and easier to find a job, more people give it a try. And that isn't happening yet or at least the you know the surveys are, aren't suggesting that it is. Of course, In this environment, it's actually quite difficult to measure what's going on. Many of the indicators are diverging. Uh, There are mixed signals. It's almost impossible that labor force participation has stayed this low with such huge payroll gains. One survey or the other must be uh, wrong and will probably be revised in the future. And I think it's just unclear which one it is.
2: And what's your forecast uh, and expectation on wage growth?
9: so this report isn't actually the best one to look at wage growth because it provides an average it shows you how the average is increasing and when you have about five hundred thousand people entering the labor market each month um the workforce rather well you have a bit of a problem there because it's low wage workers predominantly who are entering now and so they're dragging the average down there are better sources that look at wages for individuals we had the adp jobs report out this week that showed job gains for job stayers at around 7.6% and for job switches as high as 16.1%. Uh, so, sources that look at individuals over time show much faster wage growth than this jobs report will.
2: Julia Pollack, thanks so much uh, for joining us uh, on the uh, jobs report uh, preview. Of course, that will be a key factor for markets uh, this morning. Coming up on Squawk Box, uh, futures at the moment are pretty much flat. Let's get to you up to speed with the uh, most important corporate stories of the morning. Pippa Stevens back with those. Hey, Pippa.
3: Hello again, Wolf. Well, Starbucks officially naming its next CEO. Laxman there is Simhan officially being tapped for the role. The move comes after he announced he was stepping down as CEO of health and hygiene company Wreck which owns brands such as Lysol and Mucinix, just hours before the Starbucks announcement. Neeraj Simon will join Starbucks in October, learning about the company and its reinvention plan before assuming the top job in April. Until then, Howard Schultz will continue as interim CEO. Neeraj Simon will have several issues to tackle as CEO, including inflation struggles in China and a union push at more than 200 of its U.S. stores. And sticking with the growing union push by workers, employees at another Apple store are looking to become the latest to vote on unionizing. According to reports, workers at the Oklahoma City store have filed a petition with the National Labor Relations Board seeking a vote to join the Communications Workers of America union. The move comes about two months after workers at a Maryland store voted to unionize with the International Association of Machinists. And Elizabeth Holmes facing a legal setback in her bid to get her fraud conviction overturned. A federal judge tentatively declining to overturn the jury's ruling against the Theranos CEO. The judge won't make the decision final until mid-October when Holmes is due to be sentenced. She faces up to 20 years in prison. And, while this trial has just been fascinating to watch. So many twists and turns.
2: Oh, such a fascinating story, as you just said, and the trial, just the final, uh, the final part of it. Pippa Stevens, uh, thank you so much. Uh, for that breakdown uh, this morning. Uh, now, business leaders, heads of states and top market players have been gathering uh, along the waters of Lake Como in Italy over the last uh, day or so. And our Steve Cedric is uh, lakeside at the Ambrosetti uh, Forum uh, for us. So, Steve, a very uh, good morning uh, to you. And uh, what a great series of interviews you've been doing so far throughout the, throughout the morning. W- what is the key takeaway, particularly on that all-important uh, macro outlook for Europe and uh, And energy outlook.
1: Yeah, morning, Wolf. I know you've been uh, looking at some of those interviews, and there have been some extraordinary conversations. And it's not just about Europe as well. The good thing about this event is you get the top players from all around the world. Uh, I was listening to Mike Pompeo, the uh, Secretary of State under the Trump administration, uh, talking yesterday about his concerns geopolitically. I was talking to uh, Khaled al-Fali yesterday, who is the Minister of Investment, and our viewers will remember him as the man who put together OPEC Plus with the Russians as well. So big Saudi delegation here, a lot of top U.S. politicians in town as well. But there is no doubt about it. The, the clear and present concern here in Europe is the, the crisis emanating from the Ukraine conflict and what that's doing to any hopes of economic recovery. Uh, of course, Europe does have a plan, and it's a very well-financed plan, uh, hundreds of billions of euros in, in order to build a next generation EU. But then, of course, it's been blindsided uh, and perhaps some of the impetus of it negated uh, by the crisis coming from uh, Ukraine, which we know has sent energy prices surging. Uh, not Not only, of course, here in Europe, but also in the US, but we have a specific problem here in Europe, and that is the fact that historically the Europeans and and the Germans have got most of their gas, that's natural gas, uh, from the Russians as well. And now the Russians at the moment uh, are are, are dabbling with turning the taps off. In fact, it's actually off for so-called planned maintenance at the moment. So it is that crisis um, that is really concerning a lot of people added to the fact that this country once again is in an election cycle, Wilf, as well. And who knows what kind of government we're going to end up with. It looks like a right-wing government, uh, and that could be worrying for European unity.
2: Well, I I wanted to touch quickly on on the picture in Italy, because it's always uh, so central to the outlook for the broader uh, Eurozone, Steve. And, of course, we're expecting rate hikes uh, from the ECB as well as the Bank of England in in the month ahead. And, uh, in fact... Yields in Europe have really been uh, one of the factors for dragging U.S. yields higher. Is there concern at the Forum and in Italy specifically that we might start to see those spreads between Italian yields and, and other periphery countries and, and German yields uh, gap up once the ECB starts hiking more aggressively?
1: Yeah, I, I think there is, Wilf. And I think I think what a lot of people are doing here, they're holding the look. You know, it's like those gunfighters and those old Westerns, they're holding the look, but they're really concerned about what happens next, because there's no doubt about it. I've been asking that question to a whole host of people as well. And they're saying, look, no worried about the fragmentation of Italy and its bond market over the German yields, which is a key measure that everyone looks at. But then I reply, I say, well, look, the absolute yield, the yield that they actually pay is going up. It's getting close to the 4% level. And then it's building potentially uh, with an impetus with the head funds shorting the BTPs in some measure as well now as well but a lot of people are very worried there is no doubt about it as well because the cost of financing especially if the ECB does hike rates in the next week or so which we expect them to do quite aggressively that's going to send all bond yields in Europe higher which is going to potentially add to that cost of living crisis and you add in the political consternation here in Italy as well so you have got a storm brewing whether it's a perfect storm or not a real maelstrom that remains to be seen but yeah absolutely political Concerns, economic concerns, cost of living concerns. And we've just had out of Europe, and I'm sure you're aware of this, some absolutely huge historic inflation prints in the last 48 hours as well. Yes, there's a lot of very
2: concerned people. See, Cedric, as always, thanks so much. Uh, fabulous uh, backdrop you've got there. Uh, enjoy the rest of the conference. Uh, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, it's Hobbits versus Dragons, Amazon versus HBO uh, into the fresh, fresh latest chapter of the Streaming Wars. We'll uh, have that story for you next. Welcome back. Uh, The Streaming Wars uh, continue. Amazon Prime Video releasing its Lord of the Rings prequel, The Rings of Power, on its platform yesterday... The release coming hot on the heels of HBO's own franchise prequel, House of the Dragon, uh, the Game of Thrones prequel. Of course, uh, those first two episodes uh, are out and have pulled in roughly 10 million viewers each on HBO and HBO Max. So what will the uh, two series mean for the two platforms and the broader streaming landscape? Uh, I'm joined uh, now by Stephanie Meta, CEO of Fast Company. Stephanie, uh, great to have you with us and it 's such a great story this uh, everyone enjoys uh, enjoys chatting about it. My first question is per hour uh, of of each show w- which of these two is is rumored uh, reported to be to be more expensive and and how do, do they rank relative to the most expensive shows of, of all time over the last decade
0: well there 's no question that uh, Lord of the Rings is the more expensive of the two shows when you count the rights that um, Amazon paid for. And they reported per episode, I think they've been reported to be spending about $465 million for the first season. This is a, a long bet for Amazon. This is what Amazon does. They um, they don't worry about the sort of short-term return on things. They really bet for the long tar- long term. And this is a long-term bet that is valued at north of a billion dollars.
2: I mean, also there's a factor in this that Jeff Bezos is reportedly a massive Lord of the Rings fan. So maybe that inflated the price a little bit. But if we park that issue, clearly we've seen the share prices of the likes of Netflix and Disney as well and and the streaming part of the market in general collapse in the last year or so. So is this a last hurrah when when we talk about these very... Uh, very, very famous uh, franchises, a last hurrah for for huge budget streaming TV shows? Or do you think uh, it can continue despite the fall in the share prices of the likes of Netflix?
0: Well, I think we're starting to see a little bit of a bifurcation among the streaming giants. You have companies like Amazon and your viewers know very well, Wilfred, that they have a very different business model here. They can spend the big budgets. They can spend money to create premium caliber programming because they're measuring their return not on necessarily straight up viewership or even Academy Awards and Oscar Awards, but really on how many prime subscriptions they can sell. And so for a company like Amazon, and where you also have, as you pointed out, you know, a very large shareholder who's personally invested in making sure that this high quality programming is out there. You know, I can very well see a company like Amazon or maybe even an HBO continuing to invest in this kind of premium quality content. You know, Apple is another company that has a slightly different business model. I think for the more traditional media companies and certainly for the ones that are affiliated with more traditional network television companies, they're going to have to really sort of start to calculate where they're gonna place their bets.
2: And, and what about the balance between TV and uh, and feature-length movies? I mean, clearly the pandemic saw, saw a big pushback towards uh, TV over over movies. Has has Top Gun and uh, and other box office hits this summer altered the balance there a, a, a little bit?
0: I would say it has altered it a little bit. I mean, you're always going to see... Uh, you know, what's been interesting is that Top Gun is the first movie in a long time that has generated the kind of conversation that we've seen from some of the streamers' television shows and even some of their more feature-length movies. So, you know, I think there's always going to be an appetite, you know, particularly, Wilford, when you have these hot summer days and people are looking to get out of the house and have some sort of shared experience. I, I don't think we can count out feature films and I don't think we can count out people going to the movies, but it is going to, again, it's going to change the the calculus a little bit. I think you'll see uh, a continued appetite for blockbusters there may be some some room for niche productions in there but it's that messy middle that you know has always had a little bit of a challenge and i think will be even more challenged going forward
2: stephanie great stuff thanks so much for joining me this morning uh, really interesting uh, discussion we've also got avatar coming up as well so uh, another reason to go back to the movie theaters uh, too. Uh, still to come here on worldwide exchange futures essentially uh, flat as uh, as we await the friday jobs report we'll discuss uh, all uh, of the latest factors driving markets with Sam Stovall next. Welcome back. Uh, futures essentially flat uh, following yesterday's very strong afternoon rebound, but we're still down 2 to 3% for the week as a whole uh, for U.S. markets. Uh, let's bring in Sam Stovall, chief investment strategist uh, at uh, CFRA. very good morning to you sam thanks for for joining me um, what do you make of uh, of the bounce that we saw yesterday afternoon Was that overdue after that pullback in the the prior couple of weeks
6: well, good morning, will. Uh, basically, we did have a slight oversold situation, in my opinion. But probably more important was an important retracement level on the S&P 500 at about 3,900. So I think investors are saying, like, this is a line that we want to hold because the next level of support is down around 3,800. And then we go back to the June 16th low. So, Right now, the concern is whether we're headed for recession. And those are the sectors that are leading to the downside in terms of worries.
2: And and do you think the worries are overdone? Do you think those June lows are are very easily reached again?
6: I don't think they'll be easily reached. uh, And uh, I do believe that right now uh, the feeling is that they will hold. We did retrace 50 percent of the decline on August 12th. And every time since World War II that we retraced 50 percent of a bear market move, we did not go on to set a lower low. So basically, the the feeling is that right now we are likely to see the the June 16th low challenged, uh, but end up holding.
2: Um, Sam, what do you say to people that point out the fact that you could look at something like the FTSE 100, where the dividend yield is over 5 percent, uh, and the 10-year yield uh, is about 3% versus the S&P 500, where the dividend yield is less than 2%, uh, but the 10-year yield has risen sharply, of course, year to date uh, and is about 32 3.3%. Does that not suggest that U.S. equities are, are sharply overvalued?
6: Well, on a relative basis, I think international uh, stock markets have been more attractive than U.S. for quite some time on a rolling five-year compound annual growth basis, as well as looking at a uh, forward 12-month earnings, both of these measures are at or below one standard deviation from the mean. And the problem is, however, that they have remained so for quite some time. Uh, I think basically investors are worried that because of the potential of a 75 basis point height by the ECB. We, however, think it'll be 50 basis points. Uh, It's concerned that of the two uh, regions, the Europe is more likely to fall into a deeper recession than the U.S. So longer term, yes, uh, international does represent a nice opportunity, especially should we see a weakening of the U.S. dollar down the road.
2: But but even if you don't make the comparison Europe to to the U.S., uh, Sam, if you make it within the U.S. bonds to equities, that the scale in which yields have risen, the alternative to equities uh, in the U.S. over the course of this year, surely that could mean that U.S. equities are are due a much bigger pullback than they've had, even though they've, they've fallen year to date.
6: Well, that's certainly a possibility, will. Uh, I mean, when you, you look to the fact that uh, the 10-year yield is now above what it was earlier in the year at three and a quarter percent, heading to possibly three and a half percent or further, based on the uh, hints by the FOMC that they're likely to be uh, terminating at about a four percent level uh, for Fed funds, I think that certainly does put more pressure on the stock market. We have inflation that's more than six and a half percent. And any time we have had that since World War Two, the U.S. has fallen into recession. uh, And traditionally, we've seen very sharp pullbacks in valuations by about one third. Um, So there is a possibility that we do end up lower. uh, But I also believe that that's something that could end up being into next year when we have a greater uh, likelihood of recession.
2: Sam, thanks so much for joining uh, me this morning. Very much appreciate it. Sam Stovall from CFRA. Uh, as we leave here on Worldwide Exchange, you've got futures just uh, fractionally lower in the pre-market. Uh, we're down 2% this week on the Dow, 3% this week on the NASDAQ, the S&P somewhere in between. But of course, we did have a great bounce yesterday afternoon. Otherwise, the week-to-date picture would be looking uh, worse still. That does it for Worldwide Exchange uh, this Friday. Coming up uh, on Scorebox with the jobs number to break it down and what it all means. Becky, Mike Santoli and Steve Leisman. Don't go anywhere. Stay with CNBC. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us
1: live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC.
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.